Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. If you have notes, you should be able to follow me. If not, you can, uh, there's Bible in the views if you would like to. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. Now, here is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. This passage is one of the scariest passages in the whole Bible. It is so tense. So we need to approach it and try to understand what the Word of God is telling us. And I beg you, please pay attention to every single word in that passage. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Can we read verse 27 together out loud? What is left if we continue on sinning is this, verse 27, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserved to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him or them and who has insulted the spirit of grace? Verse 30, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a dreadful, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Can we say verse 31 together again? It is a fearful or a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We've been talking about the book of Hebrews now for 44 weeks. And just to, re- to let you know what's going on. The book of Hebrews was written by one of uh, the disciples who written to people used to be Christian and then they wanted, because of persecution, to leave Christianity and go back to Judaism because they converted from Judaism. So the author of Hebrews wrote that letter to them to encourage them to endure persecution and never ever to consider abandoning Christianity or abandoning Christ to go back to Judaism. And we said before that he spent from, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 18, arguing theology, the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of the New Testament over the Old Testament. And because of that, he's telling them, don't leave what is superior to go to what is inferior. And starting from chapter 10, verse 19, we're verse 26 now, so in the last few weeks only, We have been talking about the author of Hebrews' practical application. If Christ is superior, if Christianity is superior, how the Hebrews should live their lives. And the last two weeks we spoke about him exhorting them to enter into the Holy of Holies, to enter into the sanctuary and seek the face of God. Now today, this five, six verses that we just read, it's kind of like an interruptive thought. He's not really continuing what he has been saying. He paused, and he's giving them this stern warning here in chapter 10, verse 26 to verse 31. And if you remember, 
This is actually the fourth warning in the book of Hebrews. We have seen this pattern before. You guys remember? In chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, he stopped again his, his argument, and he gave them a stern warning. How shall we be saved if we neglect such a great salvation? He did the same thing in chapter 4, verse 12 to 13, and again in chapter 6, verse 4 to verse 8. <clears throat> Pretty much the whole chapter 6 is, is one of these warnings. So before we have seen him doing that, he stops what he's saying, and he is presenting a warning to the people that they should absolutely never, ever consider abandoning Christ. This is the fourth warning in the epistle of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews. And then there's the last and fifth one coming up in chapter 12. Now, before we move on to the meaning of this passage and the meaning of this is, is, uh, warning, let's talk about some theological issues that associated with that passage, okay? So we need to uh, try to understand what the Word of God is saying and how that relates to what we believe as theology goes. The first issue that we need to address when it comes to that uh, passage is this. Uh, Jehovah Witness argue that if somebody is not a Christian, if you're a sinner, if you're not a believer, then once you die, you vanish. You cease from existence. They don't believe as we Christians believe that your, your, your spirit is eternal and that once you die, you either go into the presence of God or go to Hades where, where you're going to be tormented. Now, Jehovah Witnesses say once you die, you cease from existence, you vanish. But if their theology is true, then we have a problem with this passage here. Because in verse um, 28 and 29, here is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three people. Verse 29, how much more severely do you think someone deserves who trampled the Son of God underfoot, despised the spirit of grace, and count the blood of the covenant as a common thing? Now, the question that he's asking in verse 29, how much worse judgment implies that there is a punishment that is much far more severe than death that the person who sinned against the law of Moses will be subject to. You guys are with me? If, if, if death is it, if you don't know Jesus, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and after you die, you're going to vanish and you're going to cease from existence, which what Jehovah Witness teaching, then the answer to question number 20 in verse 29, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished? The answer is not much. Right? You follow me? Because there is nothing really after death. There is nothing that more punishment that you can endure if you die, if you cease from existence after you die, as Jehovah Witness teaches. Right? So even though not explicitly taught here, it is definitely implied that there is something far more severe, far more worse than death that somebody who rejects Christ will expose to. We know that to be that the conscious, eternal torment that sinners are going to endure in hell apart from Christ. Amen? So that's issue number one. Issue number two. Is the author of Hebrews here talking about an actual believer, or he's talking about somebody who's not an actual Christian? Is he talking about somebody who committed their life to Christ, and they got changed, and they're walking with him? And then somehow they got to the point that they abandoned their faith so much so that they're backslid? Or is he talking about somebody who doesn't know Jesus at all? And again, this is a lot of theological debates when it comes to that. Well, let's look at the, uh, the argument both ways. 
it definitely can be talking about somebody who knows Jesus just because that text, that phrase when he says, how much worse punishment do you think he is deserving? The one who count the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified as a coming thing. That phrase, he has been sanctified, is the only reason you can take this passage and say he's talking about actual believers. Because has been sanctified, that's a past tense. Something has already happened to that person, right? He has been sanctified, yet, even though he has been sanctified in the past, now he's getting to the point that he's counting this blood as a common thing and he's abandoning Christianity and abandoning Christ. So if you believe that the believer can backslide and uh, totally end up abandoning Christ and die and go to hell, this would probably be your ammunition from, from the scripture. This is where you can go to and say, here is it says, you have been sanctified, but yet you can uh, totally backslide. And in, in fairness, I don't believe in that, but in fairness, um, <clears throat> The word sanctified in the book of Hebrews constantly, almost always, talking about people who have a genuine and real experience with Christ, who have been actually set aside from, the, from this world to know Jesus and to serve him, right? Many examples of that. So the argument has its merits, and I don't have a 100% convincing answer to that. Now, if you don't think that this passage talk about actual believer, you, always, you also have your ammunition here. Because in verse 26, it says this, if we deliberately, if we willingly, right, willfully continue on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, then we don't have any more uh, sacrifice for sin, right? The, the verb format that the author of Hebrews used here, continued on sinning, it is present participle, something that is keep on happening. He's not talking about one time falling in sin. He's talking about the life of sin. Someone who's keep on sinning. Someone who keep on living that life of sin. The NIV puts it this way, deliberately keep on sinning. The ESV and ASB, the other translations say, go on sinning. So the author of Hebrews is talking about somebody here who keep on living the life of sin. You guys are with me? Now, we know from the scripture that a Christian, somebody who experienced the love of God, committed their life to Christ, cannot live that life of sin. You guys are with me? Yes, you do fall in sin every now and then, but this is not the way of life. You guys are with me? So, as a matter of fact, John told us point blank this in 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God will continue on sinning. If you know God, you cannot live the life of sin. You're with me? So, is he talking about true believers or he's not talking about true believers? There is argument for both from that text. So where does that leave us? It's confusing. I'm not going to lie to you. And I'm not sure if I have a 100% answer to that. But let's just agree on the main points that we know for sure. Whether you believe that a believer can actually backslide and perish or that a believer can never die and perish, here is what Arminists and Calvinists agree on. Number one, and we all agree on this, a true believer won't utterly reject Christ. John just told us that God's seed remain in him. You guys are with me? So if you say that you have been converted, and you walk with Christ all the way till you die, we know for sure you're a Christian, you're going to heaven, there's no wonder about that, right? Everybody agrees on that. Whether you're Arminist or a Calvinist, Arminianist or Calvinist, you agree on that. Now, 
we also agree that a person who lives the life of sin is not a true believer. You guys are with me? And this is extremely important. The fact that you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. The fact that you stand here and preach on Sunday morning does not make you a Christian. You guys are with me? The Bible tells us if anyone in Christ Jesus is what? A new creation. The opposite is also true. If you're not a new creation, then you have never been in Christ Jesus. You guys are with me? If your life doesn't get changed and 100% transformed, then you were not, you're not a Christian. You're not a believer. That sometimes can happen in an incident, incident once you commit your life to Christ. And sometimes it can take a year or two. But during that time, you are getting to the point that you are becoming a brand new creation. You guys are with me? You guys are with me? So it doesn't... You cannot say, I'm a Christian, but I'm still drinking, I'm still doing this or that, and I'm living the life of sin. I don't read my Bible, I don't pray, I just, you know, go to church whenever I remember, and you just live like any other person in this world, don't even feel convicted about it, and you say, I'm a Christian, it doesn't work this way. Being a Christian means you are transformed by the power of Christ, and you have become a brand new person. Amen? You can make some commitment. You can make some changes in your life. Your behavior can change a little bit. You can come to church, make a commitment to follow God, and you leave that church, quit smoking altogether, and don't smoke anymore. You might even leave church, stop sleeping around, because you know what? I go to church, and I'm going to change a little bit. Your behavior can be modified, but still, even with the modification of your behavior, you're still not a Christian. You guys are with me? This is extremely important. What makes a Christian Christian is an encounter with the living Christ that will transform your life once and for all. You're with me? Jesus is not in the business of behavior modification. Jesus is in the business of life transformation. You guys are with me? You guys are with me? So, you can be at church, yes. You can preach even on Sunday morning, yes. You can be in the ministry, no problem. Your behavior can change slightly, that's fine. But even, and you can know a lot of information in your mind about Jesus, that's all good. But the combination of all these factors does not make you a Christian. Being a Christian means you come to the end of yourself and say, Jesus, there is no way I can be made right with God in my own merits, in my own good works. Come to my heart and change me. And the living Christ will come into your heart and his life-given resurrection will breathe life into you and ultimately you will become a brand new person. Amen? It can happen over a second like Paul in the scripture. He committed his life, next day he's preaching. You guys are with me? And it can take some time. It can take a year or two to get to that point. But during that time, you are improving. You're walking with Christ. You're getting better by the day. And then within a couple of years or a year or two, whatever the case is, you're getting to the point that you're 100% transformed. Amen? What makes a Christian Christian? A transformed life. That's what marks you as a Christian. If your life has not been changed, you're not a Christian. Look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 22 to 23. Look at the words, the scary words of Christ. Many will say to me in that day, the day of judgment, you're with me? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly. I never knew you away from me, you evil 
doers. This is scary. Now, these people were sincerely convinced that they're Christian. Can you tell that? They, they were shocked that they're not going to heaven. It's like, how come we're not going in? We did miracles in your name. I mean, think about that. Somebody, have a sick person, lay hand on them, cast this sickness out in Jesus' name, and the person who's sick getting healed, and the person who prayed for the sick person doesn't even know Jesus and end up not being with Christ for all eternity. You know why? Because they're evil doers. Their life has not been changed. They still live the life of sin. They are still evil doers. You're with me? This is extremely important. And it's, I'm scared that there might be, even we're small, but I'm scared that even some people here, still that way, you know a lot about Christ in your mind. You can even share the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. You know the scripture, you can quote it, and you think that because you know the knowledge in your brain, and you come to church every now and then, or come to church every Sunday, and that combination makes you a Christian, and that's not true. You're with me. A Christian is somebody who has been transformed once and for all by the, by the life-giving power of Christ. So we agree on that. Nobody, whether you're Arminist or a Calvinist, will disagree. A person who commits their life to Christ and has been transformed and walk with Christ till the end, they're Christian. A person who never has been transformed, lived a life of sin, they're not Christian. So that leaves us with the problem of the people who temporarily walk with Christ and then they go back. That's the issue. That's where, where the problem, the division is. When you walk temporarily with Christ, are you a believer or you're not a believer? I think the scripture solved that problem for us in 1 John 2, 19. Here is what John said about some people who were in the church. And he said this, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Think about that. They did not really belong to us. They belonged to us in some sense, but they did not really, really, really belong to, God, to us. You guys are with me? For if they had be belonged to us, they would have remained with us. That is the mark that they belong to us, is that they remained with us. You guys are with me? The fact that they did not remain told John that they did not really belong to start with. You're with me? But their going showed that none of them belong to us. Perseverance is the mark of the saints. You're with me. If you're a Christian, if you commit your life to Christ, one of the marks that you have committed your life to Christ is that you will endure, is that you will remain, is that you will stay a committed follower with Christ. Think about the parable of the sower that Jesus said. He said, some fell on good grounds and they produce fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold, right? But some fell on rocky ground. What happened to the seed on the rocky ground? They start producing fruit. You're with me? They start showing the exact same signs like the seed that fell on that good ground. In the first few weeks, you cannot tell any difference between the ones that fell on the good ground and the one that fell on the rocky ground. You guys are with me? What made the difference between these two? How can you tell that this one has good soil and this one had rocky soil? It is when tribulation comes. It's when the cares of this world kick in. That's when the one that was on the rocky ground faded out and the one that was truly on a good ground stayed, remained producing fruit. You guys are with me? And that's the exact same thing when it comes to a Christian. You, you say, 
If you're a pastor like myself and you say, hey, if you want to commit your life to Christ, raise your hands. People do raise their hands and people do walk with Christ for a week or two or a month or two or a year or two. But ultimately, the test will know, do you remain a committed follower to Christ? Because if you don't remain, maybe when you made that commitment, you really didn't mean it, that you're going to be a sold out, 100% follower of Christ. You're with me? Last example. Marriage, because I feel like that's the best way to explain walking with Christ. Seven years ago, I can't believe it, seven years ago, Katrina and I went to church, right? We stood before the pastor in front of people. And I made a vow to Katrina that I will be faithful to her. I will never leave her till death do us part, right? That was the wording I told her. You get rich, you get poor, you get sick, you get healthy. No matter what happens in the future, I'm sticking with you till death do us part, right? Now let me ask you a question. What assurances Katrina, my wife, had that day that I'm actually going to do it? None, right? How does she know that I'm actually mean, meant the words that I uttered? She won't. Maybe in my, in my deathbed when I'm dying and I'm still married to her, she'll think to herself and say, aha, he really meant it back then. You're with me? But this is my point. People make a commitment that they're gonna, I'm going to commit to that woman, I'm going to commit to that man. Two, three years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, they file for divorce. I don't want to do it anymore. Because when they made the commitment and they say, whatever it takes, maybe they say the words, but deep down in their hearts, once the rubber hit the road and it gets really tough, now, oh, let me think about this again. Maybe this is not the kind of life I want to live, right? Even though that's not the actual words that they said when stood before God and man to make a vow to live for that person. You guys are with me? And there's a lot of people like that. They tell Jesus, you know what, Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to follow you. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. And they do because of that words, follow Christ for a little bit. But eventually, they leave him and walk back. Because when they made that commitment, they wasn't, weren't really willing to do whatever it takes to be committed followers with Christ. Amen? If it gets hard, if I get persecuted, if it's better on the other way, if there's more money not being a Christian, if I can have more success by not following Christ, then Christ can go to backseat and let me handle it from here. You guys are with me? Now, this is not what a true Christian is. Jesus said that if you want to follow me, you should be willing to lay down your life. If they torture you, crucify you every single day, for my sake, you should be able to be okay with this. This is the level of commitment that Christ is expecting from those who want to follow him. Amen? I told you before, Jesus is not looking for half-hearted followers. He, he doesn't look for this kind of people. He only looks for fully committed followers. Amen? 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 And then think about it. If you're, if, if you're about to get married and your wife says, I'm going to follow you, or your husband says, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to be with you till the, till the day I die, but you know for sure that they 100% don't mean it. And you know for sure that 20 years down the road, they're going to file for a divorce. What, what you would say to that vow? It's like, oh, whatever. I know you don't mean it, right? Because you know down the road, they're going to bail out, right? So let's not fool Christ. If you're going to make a commitment, mean it. If you don't want to make the commitment, if you don't mean it, don't make the commitment. You guys are with me? But if you're going to tell Jesus, I'll follow you, you better be ready to lay down your life for his sake, whatever it takes to follow him. And when you have that level of commitment, I promise you that the living Christ will breathe life into you and you will be transformed 180 degrees. You'll become a brand new person. 
And remember that Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood. He made the way possible when he himself paid for our sins on the cross. It's because of that that he's asking in response that we will fully commit to him. Amen? Amen. Now what would happen if you don't? What if happened if after you know that God has provided the way of salvation for you in Christ, you willingly and deliberately say, no, I'm going to go live my life the way I want. What happened then? Now, this is the passage that we're talking about. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. If we sin willingly after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is absolutely no more redemption for us. But what is left is this, a fearful expectation of God's judgment and a fiery rage, wrath from God against those who are his, uh, not acquaintances or the people that he can't tolerate, against who? The enemies of God. You guys are with me? God takes it very personally when you say no to Jesus. Now, that severe wrath and judgment in this passage is described by three ways, or enforced, or um, we see that in our passage that the severity of the judgment is this. It's number one, exemplified by the law, and that's what we see in verse 28. Number two, it is enforced by the mocking dismissal of the grace of God. And that's what we see in, the, in verse 29. And number three, it is established by the very just nature of God. You guys are with me? So these three reasons here are the reason why those who say no to the grace of God and say no to Jesus are going to be exposed to a severe judgment. That judgment is exemplified by the law, as we have seen in the Old Testament. Number two, it's enforced by their mocking dismissal of the grace of God. And number three, it is established by the just nature of God. Verse 28 tells us this. If the one who sins against the law of Moses and there is two or three witnesses who can see that person breaking the law, there is absolutely no mercy for that person, but they surely must die. You guys are with me? Under the Old Testament, under Moses' law, I told you this before, all the sacrificial system was meant for unintentional sins. If you do sin that you don't mean it, then you have a sacrifice. But if you sin intentionally under the law of Moses and two people saw you sinning, killing or stealing or whatever the case is, you are doomed. There is absolutely no mercy for you. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us, God told uh, Moses in, in Deuteronomy 13, 6 to 10 is this. If someone tried to entice you to worship another God, then that person's family should be the first people who stoned that person to death. Think about it this way. God is expecting me, like I love my kids so dearly, I will take a bullet for any one of them. Yet God tells me this in the Old Testament, if Micah, come to you and try to convince you to worship another God, you should be the first one to lift the stone and stone him. That tells you about the level of severity and how God tolerates sin in the Old Testament. He would not tolerate it. You guys are with me? That fact that God would not tolerate sin in the Old Testament tells you that the same God will not tolerate sin still in the New Testament. You guys are with me? Yes, he is a gracious God. Yes, he's a God of love. That's why he's providing the way for you to escape his judgment and his wrath. But if you say no, 
All that is left for you is this, a fearful expectation and a, of, of judgment and a raging wrath because God is a just and a holy God. Amen? And we see the examples of that over and over in the Old Testament. But it's not just exemplified by the Old Testament. It is enforced by the mocking dismissal of the grace of God from the person who say no to Jesus. You guys are with me? Verse 29, start by this. How much more severely, how much worse do you think the person deserves to be punished? Remember the whole point of, of Hebrews 1, 1 to Hebrews 10, 18 is what? That the new covenant is far more superior than the old covenant. You guys are with me? The point that the author of Hebrews is making here is this. If somebody would sin against the lesser covenant, the one that is minor, that is not that big of a deal, and even under sinning against the lesser covenant, that person will die without mercy. How much more, how much worse punishment you think the person will be punished who sinned against the far much greater covenant? You guys are with me? That's the whole point here. How much worse is the punishment if you sin in the New Testament against Christ? And then the author of Hebrews used chilling words to describe when you reject Christ, when you say no to God's love in Jesus, then the words, how your attitude toward God is, the words here are so chilling. He used three different ways to describe it. Number one, you trample the Son of God underfoot. When you say no to Jesus, this is how God feels it. You trample the Son of God underfoot. You treat as a common, filthy thing the blood of the covenant by which you can be sanctified. And number three, you insult the spirit of God's grace. Number one, you trample the Son of God underfoot. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the term Son of God is always associated with exaltation. This is somebody that God himself has lifted up. For example, Hebrews 1, 3 to 4 talks about this. The Son, the Jesus, the Son of God, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by the power, by His powerful word. And look at this. After He has provided purification for our sin, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high in heaven. Amen? God lifted Him up and God seated Him at His right hand in majesty so that He has become so much superior to all the angels in as much as He has inherited a far much better name. You guys are with me? Over and over and over in the book of Hebrews, we see that the term son of God is always associated with the one that God has exalted so high. Amen? And what the author of Hebrews is telling us here is this. You are despising and putting so low the one that God himself has lifted so high when you say no to God's loving Christ Jesus. Amen? You trample him underfoot. What is the lowest part of your body? How, what is the lowest part of everything that you are? Under your feet. You can't go any lower than that, right? And in the Middle Eastern culture, and I know this to be true because I'm from the Middle East, shoes, foot, it's always associated with despising somebody. You guys are with me? Remember when President Bush went to Iraq? when they started the Iraq war and that Iraqi journalist threw a shoe at the president, President Bush. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. I tell you one thing for sure. He didn't throw the shoe because the shoe was the only mobile things that he has in his hand. 
He purposely took a shoe because in his mindset as a Middle Eastern guy, this is how he can show him that he utterly despised him and he feel that he's a piece of filth that he threw his shoe at him. The fact that he threw his shoe is just an indication that he utterly despised George Bush. He can throw his pen, his pad, whatever he can throw. He picked his shoe on purpose because this is the Middle Eastern mindset. You guys are with me? And that's precisely what the author of Hebrews is saying here. When God gives you all his love, all his grace, provide the perfect and complete way for you to be saved. When Jesus came down from heaven and died and endured that torturous, shameful, disgraceful death on the cross for the sake of your salvation. And then you look at everything that God has done to bring you back and say, I don't care. I'm still going to live my life my way. This Jesus who gave everything for my salvation ain't worth my time, ain't worth my heart, ain't worth my affection. I had nothing to do with him. I'm far much better off without him. When you say no to God's love for you that he has demonstrated in Christ Jesus, the way God feels it is that you utterly despise him. But not just you trample the Son of God underfoot, you also count as a common, unholy thing, the blood of the covenant by which you have been sanctified or you can be sanctified. Again, you see the contrast, the word, the blood of the covenant by which you've been sanctified, you made holy, that's the word sanctified, been made holy. Contrasted with the word unholy, you count it as a common thing. When you say no to God's love for you that he has demonstrated in, in the cross and the resurrection of Christ, in an essence, you're telling God that this blood, this precious blood of Jesus that God has shed on the cross for the sake of your salvation, you count that as a blood of any other person or any other animal that has been shed that has no worth in it at all. It is an absolutely common thing. You guys are with me? And not only that, but you also insult the spirit of grace. God's spirit that is trying to plead with you to try to bring you to the grace and the love and the mercy of God. When you say no to that love and that grace and that mercy, the Holy Spirit gets insulted. Think about that. That's the spirit of the living God. And you're insulting him by saying no to God's love and his grace and mercy that he has for you in Jesus Christ. But not only that, it's not only exemplified by the Old Testament, it's not only enforced by your mocking dismissal of the grace of God, but it's also established by the just nature of God. And that's what we see in verse 30 and verse 31. What does the word say in the Old Testament? God said this, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I will repay. Not punishment, vengeance. Think about that. Not punishment, vengeance. Somebody who is want to avenge, that's somebody who's taken the matter very personally to him. You guys are with me? And he feels that he himself has been insulted and he needs to stand up to defend himself from what you have done to him. You guys are with me? And this is how God feels when you say no to Jesus, when you say no to love, God's love and God's grace that he's showing you when Jesus died on the cross on your behalf. God takes that very personally. It's not just a matter of punishment anymore, but now it's a matter of personal vengeance. You guys are with me? Now, God is a just God. 
That's why Jesus came down from heaven. That's why if you, if you have watched that movie, The Passion of Christ, and see just the torture and the pain that Jesus has went through to be your substitute, to pay on your behalf the punishment of your sins, this all was done because God is a just God. God cannot just forgive you for no reason. In order for God to forgive you, he had to take the punishment of your sins from his son on the cross. He already provided that perfect and complete way for you. Now, if you say no to all that God is doing, God will be very, very offended. Think about it this way. Think about it this way. If you have a friend or, or, uh, or a co-worker or somebody that you know, and you can see that they're really miserable in their condition. They have to walk 10 miles to work, and you feel so bad for them. So you go, you pick an extra job, you work 40 hours, work extra 20 hours a week, save every single penny that you have done. You put up with a mean boss, you wake up so early, you go to bed so late, your life is miserable for months, maybe years, to try to save so much money, and then you take this money that you have saved and you go buy a car for your friend who's miserably need that car. You guys are with me? And then you bring him that car and he say, hey, I love you, I care for you, here is a gift for you. And then he takes a look at that car and say, no, not, my, not what I deserve, I deserve better. This is not worth it for me. How would you feel? How would you feel? This is how God feels. Because he has paid the ultimate price when Jesus came down from heaven to die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. And when you look at all his love and his mercy and his grace and that massive price that he paid on the cross and you say, no, I don't care for none of that. God feels offended. And he has every right to. And if you forget everything I told you, please remember verse 31. It is a fearful thing. To fall into the hands of the living God. The good news is you don't have to fall into the hands, uh, into the fearful hands of the living God. Amen? God has made the way for you. You don't have to continue on rejecting Christ today. All that you have to do is just run and take refuge in what God has done for you in Jesus. And then you will never have to worry about your eternity. Because you're going to be secured in the very hand of Jesus and you will have eternal life. Amen? Let me close with that thought and then we're done. When I go out and witness, I hear this a lot. People say, what kind of God is this about the Bible, about the God of the Bible? And say, what kind of God that tells you, follow me, be my disciple, give me all in all, or I'm going to send you to hell. What kind of God is this? Right? And a lot of people think this way. What kind of God that says, give me all, or I'm sending you to hell? But friends, the truth could not be any further from that claim. You guys are with me? God is not giving people ultimatum. God is not giving you today an option and saying, either follow me, commit 100% to me, or I'm sending you to hell. This is not your options this morning. Don't misunderstand me. You guys are with me? The facts of the matter is this. We have all sinned before God. Amen? Anybody here is not a sinner? Anybody here has not broken the law of God? We all did. The Bible says we all did. So even if you say you didn't, I'll trust God's word. Amen? So the Bible said that we all have sinned before a holy and a righteous God. And because you sinned, just like when you break the law here on earth, when you speed, you're under the penalty of the law. You guys are with me? 
When you sin against God, you put yourself under his judgment and under his wrath, right? So hell, the wrath of God, the judgment of God is the default fate, the default destination of every human being. You guys are with me? You guys are with me? Nobody? Okay. Hell, the wrath of God, is the default destination to every single human being because we all sin against God and because we all break His law, right? I remember I bought a track one time that you give away to people. And the, the, the outside of the track say, what do you need to do to go to hell? And then you open it, and the largest word, first word, very large, say, nothing. You're with me? You really don't have to do anything to go to hell. This is our default destination because we have willingly sinned against a holy and a righteous God. But what God is offering you today is not an ultimatum. He's offering you an escape. You guys are with me? God today is not telling you, choose me or I'm sending you to hell. God today is saying, you are going to hell because you have sinned against me. But I love you so much that I have provided the way for you to be saved. When I sent my son Jesus and I crushed him on the cross for the sake of your sins. Amen. Would you come to me today and run and take refuge in the blood of my son from the wrath of God that is revealed against you. Amen. Now it's up to you. If you don't run and take refuge in the blood of Jesus, in the salvation that God has provided for you on the cross, there is nothing left for you except your default destination, which is the expected judgment and the raging wrath of God against the sins that you have already committed. You follow me? You understand the difference? This is huge. You guys are with me. What were you going to do today? God is not going to force himself on you. You have to make a commitment to follow him.